and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is the PFG Live. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Wes. Wes was here before anything was even happening. Good morning, Kevin, Mr. Blodgett. Uh, hope everybody had an awesome week, and I have uh, I'm hoping that you had a wonderful holidays last weekend when we took the day off. I hope you didn't lose any momentum on your projects. It is a uh, beautiful day here in New Hampshire, although after after a week of multiple days of near 90, I, and I kid you not, we hit 86 degrees, I think. It's back down to something <laughs> resembling... 56 degrees and springtime and I see the sprinklers are going actually outside my window look at that I think my wife has declared uh, it, it, it is required so how is everybody today and let's get some uh, let's get some audio checks and some uh, weather reports while I have a sip of tea and get ready to uh, let you know what's happening it was a um it was a pretty busy week in the shop. Learned a lot. Uh, if you've been following along, you know that I was working on that uh, lathe tool post improvement project. And that went extremely well. And that, in turn, led to... Thank you, Kevin. We've got a good audio report from Kevin. That, in turn, led to uh, learning about a bunch of stuff. A bunch of really boring topics, and we will uh, we will do that. Ah, K Bonk reports: Philadelphia has uh, seven three degrees and haze. I'll tell you, Philadelphia frequently is in haze. Mister Blodgett says forty seven and raining in Oregon. <laughs> I guess that's why our sprinklers on right now, just in honor of uh, Oregon raining. Well, that sounds pretty normal. So if you, uh, if you had the patience for it, hey, Paul, how are you? Welcome aboard. If you had the patience for it, you may by now have watched uh, all three parts of the Toolpost improvement video. Part one is a standalone. That's when we, we got it working. Um, Paul reports 58 in Dallas. That's a little chilly for Dallas. Would you have some would you have some barbecue in my honor, please? Actually, if you ever come and visit, I'll, I'll take you to New Hampshire's version of barbecue, which is stunningly good. Um, so the part one of that video was a standalone uh, where we ended up pinning the the Dorian tool post to the T nut and then shimming the T nut for a good fit. We got that done with nothing but some cyanoacrylate, a shim, and a sense of humor. But then in part two, I said, nah, this is this is not good. And we went ahead and we pinned uh, the tool post to the tool block, in which we started learning a lot. <laughs> K-Bonk says he's playing, he's playing for Philadelphia Hayes presently. I wonder if that's... The bass, or perhaps the drums. You might be doing the drums with the name like K-Bonk. Well, I remember that band. Excellent band. 
anyway, th those videos are out, done, and uh, I have a significant amount of commentary on making a YouTube video. Uh, it was, it was uh, stunningly time-consuming in the in the setup and the editing, and I have a I have the a ratio which I'm going to quote. Yes, Kevin, shimming the T-nut. That was one of our hits uh, when I was playing bass for Philadelphia Hayes. Correct. Oh, Paul says burgers are on the grill around four. I I might could be able to get there if I. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. If I stood if I still had my uh, airplane. Um No, nah, I couldn't get to I couldn't get to you by then. <laughs> I know somebody whose airplane I could maybe borrow and maybe get to you by, but I'd have to I'd have to run out the door right now. Yeah, K Bonk's on his way. <laughs> so um So yeah, there you go. Anyway, the uh, the project was fun. We'll talk a little bit about it today, but making a YouTube video is five to one. So if you're going to make a one-hour YouTube video, which unfortunately uh, the last one turned out to be, you're going to spend five hours uh, in editing and setup. Now that's not exactly true. We got some efficiency out of it because the dirty little secret is that part part two and three of that video were actually made together. And then it was at the end of the process where I learned in uh, Adobe Premiere Pro how to split it into two videos. And I did, and it was fun. And I learned something. So if I learned something, it was a good thing. But at least three to one, if not five to one, I would call three to one a safe bet. So if you plan on making a 20-minute video, plan on spending one hour. Um, no, that sounds closer to five to one. Anyway, there you go. Uh, but I'm, I'm learning. Every time I do it, I'm learning, both from the activity and from the making of the video. So if I'm learning, I'm happy. If I'm not learning, I'm out. So, uh, so there you go. Oh, you're welcome, Kevin. <laughs> I figure if I learn something from the process, somebody's going to learn something from the process uh, in addition to me. And if it's only a couple of people, that's fine. I had fun. So that was the uh, that was the wrap up earlier this week, and then I started focusing on uh, new projects. <laughs> and one of the new projects is not that new, but it was forced upon me because um, if you recognize these things, come on. You could focus. These are the B200 uh, balancing rings. And I think I have one more left in the drawer and I have to uh, make these. So hopefully the spindle will be turning this week. We'll do a batch of 100 and we'll get them back in stock. But they started ramping up for some strange reason. I think somebody must have been talking about them. But they started flying out the door. So uh, we have to get the next batch going. And I will talk a little bit about what um, what I'm doing a little differently. Not there's not any major difference. I actually stared at it and I said, "Boy, I could I could fixture these differently. I can um, maybe pallet these up on the Pearson work holding, which I I recently got." But I think I'm going to do 
exactly what I did before, which was approximately 12 minute cycle time. The downside of a 12 minute cycle time is you don't have a lot of time to do something in parallel, but it gets the job done and I don't have to redesign the, uh, you know, redesign everything. So that's what's coming. Um, I will also make a commitment. Kevin Blodgett says, Steve Summers' video might have encouraged some folks to use them, although even though he didn't. <laughs> I think... I think I saw that video, and I think I was biting my lip the whole time. <laughs> hey, Steve, if you're watching, hit me up. I'll set you up, okay, bud? Just send me a message. Steve's a good guy. Um, and, and the real question is, is his grinder using a compatible hub? I'm not going to bore you with the details. Uh, head over to... Uh, ring rin.gg and uh you'll see there's a drawing there and you have to have this this boss on your adapter for this thing to clamp clamp onto and if it if it's the right one or in the right family and it has that boss it'll work but uh i love steve's videos he does a great job he makes it look easy that he make his videos makes video making look easy and uh i i appreciate that uh, let's see. So um, another commitment that I'll make for this week is getting the Discord server up and running. It exists. Uh, all, I, all that's left to do right now, I got some really good help from my uh, social media consultant. And I just have to go through the whole server, make sure it's set up and it's ready for uh, guests, and I will publish the information. Um the advantage to the Discord server is that you guys can have voice and video chats on your own. Uh, we can have guests via the Discord server. That might be pretty cool. It might be actually pretty easy, and we might might make that a regular thing. Maybe just kind of a a normal thing on the PFG Live is to have you guys come in uh, with some live commentary and maybe video. So that'll that's coming this week. I will set aside a couple hours and. And we'll make sure that gets done. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. Um, yeah, I have a I have a couple of rants today. Uh, before we got started, I was in Fusion three hundred and sixty, and I know you guys love Fusion three hundred and sixty. And the big challenge I was having was I bought these wonderful tools from. Uh, Micro 100, okay, I'm showing it on the video, if you're listening to the podcast, just imagine a custom boring tool from Micro 100, and I'm in Fusion 360, and I'm trying to figure out how to define the tool, and what I really wanted is to suck in a model from the manufacturer, well, Micro 100 does have 3D models of their tools. That's good. Fusion 360 does not have a way to use that 3D model that I am aware of. So if I'm screwed up here, somebody please tell me. But I had all the information I needed. I had a complete 3D model of the tool, and I just wanted to drop it into Fusion 360. Of course, you're going to have to tell it 
how it's oriented and all that good stuff. And then just say, that's my tool. I don't know how to do it. I don't think it's possible. That bummed me out. So I ended up figuring out a way to lie to Fusion 360 to describe this tool because Fusion 360 immediately assumes you have an insert-based tool. So I kind of invented an insert that is approximately the right size and I lied to Fusion 360. And I got it working. I got the simulation working. It looks pretty good. Um, and I have more to do on my setup in Fusion 360. In fact, what I would really like, and I don't know if anybody already made one of these, I guess I'm going to have to make my own if not, is sort of a checklist or worksheet for when you're setting up um, a Fusion 360 model and you're generating your uh, your post, your, your output, um, you know, you got to go through and, and check all your tool setups and check all your speeds and check all your feeds and do all that kind of stuff. I need a checklist. So I'm, I'm going to probably be making a checklist, but if anybody knows of an existing checklist that somebody made, I'd be interested. Uh, it'll save me some time. So, Hey, uh, uh, Autodesk, I'm talking to you. If the manufacturer gives me a complete 3D model for this tool, how come I can't use it? Let's fix that. That'd be pretty neat. Um, so, surprise, surprise, I'm driving down the road. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. <laughs> and, and I'm listening to the Business of Machining podcast. So if you have not yet found the Business of Machining podcast, go find it. It's John Saunders and John Grimsmo on a nominally weekly schedule talking to each other about real you know stuff going on manufacturing issues uh so john was talking about his recent 3d printer acquisition but but uh also they were talking about speaking to form labs and and considering the form labs uh, resin printer and you know, you're driving down the road listening to a podcast, you don't expect your name to come out of the speakers. So John Grimsmo says, well, you know, Spencer Webb of Kinetic Precision uses the Form 3 to make the Nas, which he delightfully calls, calls the Schnoz. But we, <laughs> I think that was the early name for it. It's the Nas. So uh, that was pretty funny. Uh, I, I got a, a yuck out of that. Um, so... It, if you John and John, if you want to talk about the Form 3, happy to talk about it. One, one of the things I heard them saying was how in a typical resin printer um, setup, you know, if you bought one of the import um, Chinese s small resin machines, that it was a messy, smelly, pain-in-the-neck process. I'm here to tell you that the Form 3 uh, the Form Labs design overall goes a long way to making that a non-issue. And I know I've told the story before, but when I visited Form Labs, and they're pretty close, they're just literally down the street uh, in Medford, Massachusetts. Um, I went into their print farm, and there's you know thirty to fifty printers on shelves doing things, some not doing things, and. <laughs> 
And I turned to the guy that I was visiting with and I said, what do you do for air filtering? And he said, nothing special. And I said, then why do I not smell anything? And it was amazing. Uh, so that was a solved problem. Anyway, I won't dwell too much on the form labs, but uh, it was interesting that they were discussing making soft jaws and making tools and the the ins and outs of doing that in the shop and accuracies and different materials and such. So I'm happy to discuss that. I, I it is an absolute game changer to be in the uh, form labs uh, walled garden. Happy to be there. Um, and we'll talk more about 3D printing uh, a little later here in in our uh, in our session. The um, also in preliminaries when when I was surfing around on Instagram this morning, I saw that my friend Adam Balog of Laney Machine Tech uh, not only was recently bragging about the new diamond turning lathe that they just got for the class uh, for the school, which is awesome um but he you know he was showing the uh you know i guess they're, they're assembling it so what a phenomenal opportunity for those students to be able to be exposed to diamond turning um i just i think it's really pretty amazing so go at them go get them uh and <laughs> And I got a, a request from a, a, one of my customers uh, who I had done this for before, who's a knife maker. And he asked if I can flatten his platens. <laughs> now, listen, I think once we're adults, we could decide what we want to do. And if we want to flatten each other's platens, that's, that's up to us. Don't judge. So I said, sure, send him along. So it, it, he'll be sending in uh, his platens. What do I mean? The platens are the, the flat uh, flat, the flat metal plate behind the belt on a belt grinder. And of course the knife makers love their belt grinders. But what happens is the back of the belt is wearing on this plate and eventually they get misshapen and need a little bit of love. So I've done this about three times already for knife makers. I'm happy to do it. My friend GLG Knife Works down the street, uh, John, I've done it for him. Anyway, I don't know if this is a thing that knife makers need on the regular. Um, if it is, I'll turn it into a service. I mean, it's it's actually quite pleasant to do. It's very, very easy for me to do it. Um, I have to set up for steel, but after that, it's a normal process uh, of making something flat, and it's interesting. Yeah, K Bonk says that school is just amazing. Doesn't it want to, doesn't it want to make you just pick up and head over to California and you know take take a few months off and just take some courses there? It does me. That would be a lot of fun. So uh, anyway, we'll be flattening the platens um, in the next couple of weeks as these come in. I'll make a video and uh, it's mild steel. Make it flat. That's the uh, that's the magic. So those are coming in. So um, let's see. So boring tools. Boy, howdy. Uh, this week was was most interesting. Um, you know, I didn't think I'd get as much uh, enjoyment 
or challenge out of making two bored holes. <laughs> but I did, and it was fun. Um, if you're watching the video, you can see on the screen a picture of this Micro 100 tool. That's coming up soon. This was not used in this particular project because we didn't have it until very late in the game. Hey, Bavaria CNC, welcome aboard, sir. But um, this was one of the tools we got this week. Yeah, K-Bonk, you're not wrong. K-Bonk says make them hard, they might last longer. He's referring to the Platons. Um, that is a possibility. And, and I might do an experiment with my buddy John. John, if you're listening, let's uh, talk about this. Um, because he's nearby and we could do a we could do a fun experiment. Maybe we'll make a hardened uh, platen and see how long that lasts. Good idea, Kbok. Yeah, I think we could do that. I don't think that would be terribly uh, expensive. And the platens that they typically use will fit in my heat treating oven. They're not that long. I like it. We'll do that. That's awesome. Hey, flat lapper, welcome aboard. Uh, welcome uh, welcome to the uh, PFG Live. I guess you're just discovering us. And before we get too far along, I just want to say, I'm so sorry. Um, so what we did with the uh, with the Micro 100 tool we was get, get it set up for use. And I'll, I'll get back to our um, our other boring tools that we used this week. But here's a picture of uh, the Micro 100. Um, there's the Micro 100. I was starting to mock it up, getting it set into um, into a, uh, a tool holder or a tooling block. And this is kind of where I got to at the end of uh, last week. And I published these pictures on instagram and then later i went back and looked at the pictures and i looked at this one which again if you're just listening to the podcast i'll describe uh it's the micro 100 boring bar holder sitting in a a, a standard rectangular uh lathe tool holder and i had to put a spacer on top of it and the hold down screws go down on the spacer and the spacer is bearing on the boring bar and the boring bar is sitting on the flat bottom of the tool holder. But as soon as I looked at this picture, I saw that the spacer was tilted because the screws um, were pushing on a, on a line of action that, are, that was not on the center line of the boring bar. So I was, I was not happy. Uh, so I thought about this and I came up with a solution and let's see if I have the solution in the pictures here. Um, hang on. Yeah. So here's the solution. I, I calculated a, uh, circular groove down that spacer. And that circular groove caused the spacer to bear down, not on the flat that Micro 100 put on that, but on either side of the flat. And then I used the, the position of the groove to be directly under the screws. 
And now the groove will locate the tool exactly on the line of action of the hold down screws. This works really surprisingly well and this is good to go. So this is the final setup. So really it took, it took taking that spacer bar and just adding a groove to it. it happened to be a circular groove. Would it have worked if it was a square groove? Yes, but it, this is a little stronger. So that's ready to go and ready to do work, and we'll see we'll see what happens with it. And again, this is this is why I'm excited about getting the model for this for the tool the Micro 100 tools I'm using into my, into Fusion 360. It should it should be a lot easier than it seemed to have been. So if you guys have any suggestions or experience in getting in getting that done please let me know because i really want to have an easier path between taking a micro 100 tool and dropping it into fusion so the first that that was a lesson in getting the that boring tool set up and that's going to be on the lathe but really the fun part this week was getting the boring done on the tool block for the lathe but working on the uh, on the bridge port so i have this new um not new i have this ancient uh criterion boring head and the model number i believe let's see i think it's called a one and a half where is it there it is. It's called an S-1.5 by Criterion. And it has this fine adjust above the boring head, which is very interesting. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, I got this thing set up in the Bridgeport, and it, it works spectacularly well. Hey, Chris. Welcome aboard. Uh, we saved everything for you on YouTube. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't miss anything. Um, so if you, again, if you're watching the video, uh, you'll see a picture of the Criterion boring head. I set this thing up on the bridge port, and I had to figure out really what the controls did. Now, I will admit, this was after I did the video with the pins. So everything I did on that video for adjusting that uh, boring head was empirical. And I, I wish I had done what I'm about to describe to you before I did that project and it would have gone a little smoother. But the um, the first thing I learned was that the the index on the boring head, the main little dial, is calibrated in diameter. And that is contrasted to the fine adjust on top, which I'm not going to get into too deeply right now, which was calibrated in radius. <laughs> <clears throat> So we have one tool that has a, a built-in contradiction. Okay, I you know I didn't really need the uh, super fine adjust, but it's nice to know that it's radius. Also, it's calibrated in tenths, not marked anywhere. So, so what you're adjusting, what the units are, and nowhere to be found on the uh, on the tool so getting that thing working was was very interesting uh and what i'm 
what I'm going to be doing, I actually started working on it and uh, there was some excellent confusion. I'm going to do a video on, on this measurement of measuring a boring head, figuring out how it's set up, what it's doing, and what the, what the units are. I think it's really important. <laughs> Bavaria CNC, uh, he said he only had diameter ones and that makes things so much easier. Yeah, you really have to, you know, and then I had another one. I had an inexpensive uh, Chinese one on an R8 Arbor, which was meant for the Bridgeport. And I went back and I checked it and it is cal it is also calibrated in diameter. So if it's calibrated in diameter, at least if you make a mistake, it, 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 you're undercutting, you're not overcutting, but still, you know, what's so hard about labeling it? So what my plan is, is after I, uh, in the course of doing this video on, on measuring how the boring head works, we're going to laser engrave what the manufacturer wouldn't laser engrave. This knob does diameter. It's in thousandths of an inch. This dot knob does radius. It's in 10, th 10 thousandths of an inch. So that's coming up. Another good reason to have a laser engraver in the shop. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, but it, it got me pretty fascinated with the idea of getting, you know, really good boring tools up and running, both on the lathe and on the Bridgeport. And the Bridgeport was a champ. Um, my power down feed on the Bridgeport works very well. Um, I'm going to give it some tender loving care. I think it needs a little bit of um, cleaning and, and re-greasing, but I was super happy with it. Uh, very, very nice surface finish. So that was the, that was the uh, boring head story this week. And much was learned. I've, I've not seen another uh, copy of that particular boring head. Uh, here, here's another shot of it showing the, the fine, uh, the fine adjust. Um, I would love to get another one. So if anybody spots one on eBay, let me know. Uh, and I don't know what the year of manufacture is either, but I want to take this one apart and clean it and get it going. So what do you guys use for boring heads? There's a question for you. Uh, put it in the chat. I'm interested to know what people use. And and also the, the cheap Chinese one that I have, which is a, a much bigger one, um, it's definitely cheap. The ways uh, on that boring head are not flat, not even remotely close to flat. So it's a little janky when you're making adjustments, but... I might, I might improve that one of these days. So, uh, I know that John Saunders, who John makes these, uh, tooling plates for machines and he probably has more experience <laughs> boring holes, uh, than anybody I know. And we haven't had this conversation. Uh, Kevin Blodgett says he has a Shars boring head, probably not unlike the one I have. Flat Lapper says he has a cheap POS. Now, the POS brand is very popular, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> so John Saunders, in making his magnificent tooling plates, 
Um, he he uses a boring head in the mill in production, and I don't remember which one he has, but it's got it's got I think it has a digital display on it, and you can crank in tenths and directly read right off the head. That sounds mighty interesting. And it would be surprising if I didn't one day decide I needed to get a good one. But for now, I'm having a, I'm having too good a time. Um, also, in the video, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. Ooh. Mr. Paul Morley says he's got a Criterion DBL202 and a Bridgeport number two. Cool. Bavaria CNC Swiss tools. Nice. Um, very interesting. So, uh, yeah, one of the things I learned in doing the, uh, tool post improvements and doing the boring of those holes, you know, we did a bunch of holes where we were boring a scrap piece before we went to the work piece is that the tool pressure, I had a lot of stick out on that carbide boring bar but the tool pressure is part of the equation and things got much nicer going to the very sharp carbide tools. But still, you have to have a recipe that incorporates the, the pressure from the cut. And, and it makes it for a very interesting problem in boring those holes. So we'll see what happens. But I, it, it'd be fun to get a, a modern, very high quality tool or make one. <laughs> I don't know if I want to make the electronics, however. So uh, that's the story on boring. Sorry if it was a little boring. Um, during the process of... Well, after, after I released the video, because people started watching it, I got this message. Let's see if I can put this up. Uh, Mr. Uh, Wodon says, uh, all the CNC lathes I've used have dowel holes for alignments of the tool post or turret, but no dowels installed in case it's crashed. Have you considered drilling out the center of the, lo uh, of the location dowels that you're installing as a shear pin in case a tip breaks or you have a bump? Hopefully neither happens to you. To which, of course, I replied that the tool post rotated. This was the, referring to the titanium videos. The tool post rotated during a normal but heavy operation. Thus, the, the solution we came up with. I prefer not to crash due to my incredible skill, amazing attention to detail, and extreme modesty. And that's the truth. So, this is a question I have, and I, I've known about this for a long time is that people will not put alignment pins into the turret on a CNC lathe because if they crash, they want it to move. They don't want it to hit the pins. So I thought about that, and I realized that in, in a process where you have um, an operator that might not be a machinist, and they're doing some setup, and you consider the risk of a crash high, maybe the trade-off of not having the pins installed versus 
having a crash and having less damage is worth it. But to me, I was only at 43% of my spindle load when we were doing those cuts in the titanium and the tool post moved. Now, I could crank down on that nut, you know, all day long. You're still you're still depending on something that is that is squeezing two pieces of metal together is basically a clutch. And I have no way to calibrate that. I have no way to know that it's not going to turn on me. And and to me, it was well worth the effort of pinning that into a known position that, yes, you have to shear that pin if you're going to move that tool post. If you're trying to move that tool post, then you shouldn't. Is Does that mean I could have a tool break on me? Sure. But I don't think I'm going to damage the lathe. So I opt for putting the pins in and having having a pin in shear rather than depending on the friction between two metal plates, also known as a clutch, because we really don't know what, what the value of that uh, that clutch limit is. So that's that's my approach. Uh, it's a I'm interested to hear from you guys. Does anybody avoid putting pins in in, in, in a lathe? Uh, and usually this is in a CNC lathe. Um, I'd be it, it almost I almost want to take a poll to see you know what the opinions are. But I am happy as a clam to have those pins in and have that thing not move on me, especially since I only got halfway to my my spindle horsepower limit. Um, yeah, interesting question. It's almost like, um, the argument that you shouldn't wear a seatbelt because you're going to get more injury from the seatbelt than you are getting thrown out of the car, which of course I consider completely nonsense. Uh, but that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Uh, give me my seatbelt. Um, I don't, I don't think my pins are too strong. Do you? Do these pins make me look too strong? Um, all right. So I'm, I'm waiting to see some feedback in the chat about what you guys do. Pins or no pins? I'm going to have a sip of tea. So, I want to talk a little bit about 3D printing because this has come up this uh, last few weeks. Um, the two things happened in close succession, and I don't think they're uncorrelated. The first thing is uh, the bamboo printer crashed onto the scene, if you'll pardon the expression. Uh, I think it's called the Bamboo Carbon is the model name. Kevin Blodgett votes pins. Thank you, sir. We will we will keep a tally. Um, so the, the Bamboo shows up on the scene, and it is a 3D printer that has a lot of technology incorporated into it that was not incorporated into commercial machines before. It has cameras built in. It has uh, 
LIDAR sensing, I believe. It has multi-materials. It is an, has its own enclosure. There's a lot of good things going on there. And uh, the word on the street was it works phenomenally well. So Mr. Uh, Mr. Saunders bought one, and he loves it so far. It's been a few weeks. I saw a review and discussion on, uh, 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 what's the name of that channel? Well, there were two of them. One of them is CNC Kitchen, which uh, he, uh, he did a great job of a very impartial review. Uh, the other one is, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, so I've watched two videos discussing it, and they were pretty even-handed. But the the one from CNC Kitchen was really interesting. He he brought up, he only discussed the bamboo uh, as a side effect. He was there to talk about, should you buy the new Prusa Mark IV? So the Prusa Mark IV came out, I suspect in response to the bamboo. Um, the printers that I have that you've seen me talk about and use is the Prusa Mark III. Um, no, not teaching tech, K-Bonk. It's going to drive me crazy now. I should have I should have come in with notes. Um, it, it, it'll it'll hit me later. Um, but uh, so the Prusa Mark III for me has been an absolute workhorse. It's it it does not hang on the network, it does not have a built-in camera. It's you know th- this is it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that the new Bamboo has, but it's been running for years. And for me, it and I made a video on this reliable PETG printing on the Prusa. Um, it just works, and I've been making my trays and lids for the PFG stones uh, on on a bank of three Prusa printers now for a long time. Chris uh, says also it has stability and vibration compensation. They have a name for that. That's called uh, input, input tuning, I think they call it. Uh, it does a dance and measures vibration and deflection for compensation. Um Kevin says both Peter Stanton, yes, that's right, Peter got one, and Robin Renzetti got bamboo machines lately. Yes, they did. And I'm glad Robin announced it publicly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a lot of guys are getting them. I think the investment is typically around $1,100. The Prusa Mark IV built is about the same. I might have this. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I have it backwards. $1,100 is a Prusa Mark IV assembled. Uh, and the bamboo is a little more than that. I think it's around $1,500. I think, I think uh, Robin said he spent about $1,500. But he got a bunch of spare parts also. So they're not too far apart in price. And at first glance, you look at them and the bamboo has a ton of technology uh, that the Prusa Mark IV appears not to have. I urge you to watch the CNC Kitchen video because he really addresses this. Uh, the Prusa has a bunch of new technology that's really cool. They have um, load sensing 
in the extruder head, which they're presently only using to sense the build plate. So they could sense a non-metallic uh, build plate. Right now they're sensing a build plate using a, a PINDA sensor, which is a magnetic sensor. Oh, yes. So uh, K-Bonk says that uh, having printed single wall stuff, that the the little uh, airplane wing that Peter Stanton printed on the bamboo looked on point. Agreed, it looked really good. So uh, there's a bunch of stuff that the Prusa Mark IV can do that apparently they're not doing yet, and it will require a software update. But the hardware is all there. So that's what leads me to think that they might have gotten the Mark IV out sooner than they otherwise would have gotten it out because of the pressure from the bamboo. And as far as I'm concerned, I think that's great. I think the pressure is a good thing. Um, and would I would I want to swap out my Mark Threes for the Mark IV? I don't have a lot of pressure on me to do that. I kind of want to. Uh, of my three Mark Threes, one is is an older one, which I kept upgrading and brought up to date. Should I replace that one with the Mark IV just to kind of get my toe in the water and see if it's worth it? I might do that. I'm not really, I'm not really getting motivated to do that. It's still, you know, if you build from kit, it's still going to be an $800 investment. So we'll see what happens. There's some other aspects of this also, which is I might be able to donate my existing machines, take the tax write-off, and then go get the new machines. I don't know. But I have not had my hands on the bamboo. Um, let's pop up a level and talk about some other things that nobody's talking about. And I'd like to get feedback from you guys about this. The bamboo is made in China. It's a Chinese machine. That's cool. The Prusa is, is made in the Czech Republic. And it's from that country. Uh, I am very concerned slash cautious about the support that you're going to get on the bamboo. I know they claim to have an office in Dallas, um, but I don't know if that's a desk and a phone, maybe a P.O. box, or it's a staff of 20. I have no idea. Yeah, K-Bonk uh, correctly points out that CNC Kitchen brought up the lack of open source on the, on the bamboo. So Prusa has open sourced everything about their machines. Now the fact that they can do that and still be making you know making a profit and building a very healthy business is fantastic. So the software is open source, the hardware is open source um, and the bamboo is none of that. In fact their slicer is has benefited from Prusa's work on Prusa slicer. okay which is interesting. Um, so if you if you walked into my office right, just kidding. If you walked into my office right now and you said you have to go buy another three D printer, I right now would buy another Prusa. I know how they work. I know the history. I know the response I get from their customer service. I think I would do that before I would um, 
by the bamboo. On the other hand, if you walked into my office and said, you need a multi-material printer uh, to work with some difficult filaments, and you have to do that right now, I might be pressed because the Prusa's uh, multi-material uh, capability is, to me, not proven. Oh, C.J. Stevens. We spent the whole first part of this uh, session talking about you. How could you be late? Welcome aboard. <laughs> anyway, so I'm sort of reporting what's going on. I, I, I think that's the camp I'm in right now is kind of wait and see on the on this whole bamboo brand. Uh, I think I'm still a Prusa guy. And even though I've had my words with Prusa, and I have, but that was all on the resin side where they crashed and burned, as far as I'm concerned, on resin printers, which is what led me to Formlabs, with which I am happy as a clam and, and would have it no other way. So actually, it was a blessing in disguise. But as far as uh, the Prusa Mark III uh, printers, they've been just fantastic. Open source. I could fix them. I have fixed them. I've had I've had parts that broke, some of which due to operator error, and I just printed a new one. So there you go. So that's the update. Um, I am not really taking any action on this, but I am watching it with great interest. Um, I'm not in the 3D printing hobby. In other words, I'm not interested in pushing the, the technology, trying new things, testing, playing around. I'm using 3D printing as a tool. And um, I know when I talk to, um, what is, I don't know what Clipper is. Tell me about Clipper. Uh, K-Bonk says, I'm wondering how much Clipper will change the face of the 3D printer market. K-L-I-P-P-E-R. No, no idea what that is. So, you know, when I briefly communicated with Robin, he said he wanted a he wanted something that's just going to work. He didn't want a project, so he he got that. And uh, what's interesting about that comment was that his perception of the Prusa. No, I, I I don't want to read too much into this, but some people are still looking at a Prusa as as you know it's not a finished you know it's not the highest technology. I don't know. I've I've burned more kilograms of PETG than anybody I know, and it's totally predictable and usable. Clipper is a Marlin firmware upgrade, um, and I think Marlin is the 3D uh, engine. Am I proving my point that I'm not in the 3D printer <laughs> world, um, except as a user and maybe an advanced user? Well, anyway, we'll see what happens, K-Bonk. I, I do know that right now, from again, from where I sit, uh, I'm not running out to spend my money on, uh, on the bamboo. However, I am very supportive of those who did, and I'm very interested to see how it goes because it sounds great. And I want to hear the first support issues. I want to hear the first people that go back to them and say, 
hey, I need help with this, or this came in broken or something. I, I want to hear how that goes. Um, they claim to have an office in Dallas. Would love to see, you know, see or hear from the people that are working at that office in Dallas. Um, it would just be interesting. And I, I, yes, I recognize I haven't made the same demands of Prusa. But on the other hand, I have had real-time conversations with uh, people at Prusa, and they were responsive. So, uh, Jeepers, we're coming up on the top of the hour. Uh, so what's going on with you guys? What, what uh, projects and or topics have you been dealing with this week that we need to, uh, we need to address? Oh, also, uh, I, I will temper my 3D printer rant with I don't have much interest in super special filaments. So I've been running PETG literally for years. Um, and w- there was a time when PETG was a special filament for me. And now it's just, you know, Tuesday. It's like, you know, trivial. Uh, I suppose if I was getting into carbon fiber fill or carbon filled filaments or, you know, some of these really hard to print stuff, I, I might be singing a different tune here. But, uh, yeah. So what is, uh, so the weeks ahead, uh, we've got, we've got B200, um, balancing ring production coming up, hopefully very, very soon because, um. Oh, let me let me explain to you what I'm doing differently. So I I use when I do the uh, the B200 200 balancing rings, I use the Mighty Bite. Uh, there's two of them. There's the it's the Talon Grip, no Versa Grip. I use the Versa Grip, which are the round uh, inserts that drop into their uh, jaw and it, it, they could rotate. And they're they're best for holding round work. So I started with that, but then because of my process, I needed to elevate, I needed to, to raise the work a little bit because nominally the, the work was sitting on the jaws of the uh, VersaGrip system and I needed it above the jaws so that a drill could have some clearance. So I designed these um, VersaGrip, if you're watching the video, I'm showing you a picture. I designed these VersaGrip uh, parts uh, to hold the round things. What are the round things? Uh, to hold the round things and do so about a quarter inch above the top of the jaws. Super simple. Uh, de- designed them, made them, used them in the past. But the heat treating and the strength of the part were at odds. And I had some parts crack on me. I had to temper some parts back a little bit. So I wanted to reapproach that. So this new design has some some dimensional changes, but uh, mostly we're going to do much better heat treating on them than we did last time, with much better understanding of the heat treating process. So part of what's coming up this week is get these parts made. Like I said, I'm probably at about 85% done with my Fusion 360 programming get these parts made, but then get them heat treated nicely so that they can take the stresses that they get uh, in production. 
I picked up some more liquid nitrogen. Uh, we're going to be doing cryo on this next heat treating batch. I will uh, share all that information with everybody as it happens. And that's what's coming up this week. So hopefully that will go smoothly. Uh, and then we will crank out um, a, a batch of 100 of the B200 balancing rings. And if it goes super quickly, I might you know, call up my supplier, get another hundred and just run them. You know, why not? It's it, it while we have it set up, while everything's working well, I might just, uh, I might just increase that so that I can get my attention off of that. That'll be set for a while and I can get on to some other things, which I won't dwell on because I'm behind on some projects. <laughs> uh, all of that, in addition to all the other stuff that's going on around here, uh, which are antenna related, which some of which I can't talk about. Um, one of the things that's happening at my local local makerspace, a shout out to Make It Labs in Nashua. Go to makeitlabs.com. I hope I got that right. Uh, great organization. I am going to be setting up uh, an RF bench at Make It Labs. This is, this is in addition to the ham radio station uh, to teach people how to do RF measurements for developing... Um, antennas for their projects or evaluating radios that they're using on their projects, which include 900 megahertz stuff, uh, 2.4 gigahertz stuff, 5.8 gigahertz stuff, VHF, UHF, all that kind of stuff. So we have some equipment down there. We're going to be setting up an RF bench. I'll probably post some pictures of it. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, that's also coming. So that'll be fun. Okay, so the, the chat room has been uh, pretty quiet. Uh, so I assume that there's no emergencies we need to uh, address. And you guys are awesome. So I hope you have a good week and you get a bunch of stuff done and you have some fun in the shop. Um, what do I do with titanium chips? That's what I want to know. I think they're just going to the, to the dump. Um, but if anybody has any good ideas of what I can do with stringy titanium chips, let me know because I have a bucket of them. And uh, if I don't hear anything till later this week, I'm, I'm just going to be tossing them. So that's the, that's the story. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Nice having you here, man. And uh, yeah, let's get together next week. Keep your ear on the rail for the Discord server coming up. And uh, the guys that know what I'm talking about, you're going to have to help out the guys that don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. So it, we're coming up on top of the hour from New Hampshire. I want to say thanks. Appreciate everybody. And I will see you on all the usual channels. Uh, Instagram, it's Spencer underscore web underscore NH. And on the YouTube, if you're watching, you already know, but it's, Kinetic Precision NH. And we'll see you guys next week. Take care.